Let's read together from Ecclesiastes 5, and this is verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to have the uh, first through fifth graders uh, with us today. And if uh, this is your first time you've been with us, um, we are in a a series uh, in Ecclesiastes. And um, I've been, I've gotten a lot of feedback on this, this series. Um, A lot of people say, hey, thanks for having the courage to uh, talk about Ecclesiastes. I haven't heard many people talk about it. And I've had other people just say, like, "I, I love Ecclesiastes more than um, any other book, you know, and I, I don't know, that probably says something about you. I don't know, maybe you're that existential kind of person, but we are in Ecclesiastes for 15 messages, and uh, this is message number six, so we're over a third of the way through at this point, and uh, for those of you who've hung in there, um, thank you. Um, Ecclesiastes, I do invite you to turn in your copy of scriptures or, or to your device. Uh, if, you're, if you've got a hard copy of the Bible, it's kind of like just right smack in the middle, and then a little bit to the right, so near Psalms or Proverbs. And uh, Ecclesiastes is written by a man named Koheleth, and that's, that's the, the transliteration of his name, but he's often called the professor or the teacher. Sometimes he sounds a little bit skeptical, uh, but he is definitely a man of faith. So Koheleth, the teacher, turns his gaze this morning on worshipers, now, there's been a couple of times where he's looked at, you know, various people, and he's given us sketches of, say, a rich man who doesn't have uh, anybody to leave his money to. Uh, but today, he's going to be talking about worshipers. And uh, the series title is called A Handful of Clouds. And the idea here is that if you just insist on doing life on its own terms, like under the cloud, what you can see here, it's going to be brief and it's going to be unsubstantial and it's even going to be sometimes absurd and meaningless. However, it is important that we know that this is a search for a meaningful life and he does, he does get us there. Now today is an interesting passage because uh, the teacher finds a new gear, kind of. Uh, he shifts a little bit out of that detached sort of first-person observation. He's been saying a lot of I, 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 and this time he's actually turning it on us, and he starts talking about you. And whereas thus far he's not spoken a ton about God, sometimes it'll just be large observation where God's hardly mentioned. Today he's mentioned many times. In fact, a tenth of the times that he talks about God is in these, these eight verses. And so uh, he is, he's shifting just a little bit here this morning. The title of the sermon is, God is the one who must be feared, and I have a question there, or used. 
You see, he's going to look at two different types of worshipers here. The worshiper that fears God and the worshiper that uses God. Now, all of us object to be used. You know, we don't like being used. Uh, We don't mind if we're used in appropriate ways. Like, for instance, uh, that two-year-old really cannot do anything for us. They need us to do everything for them. And we delight to do that because they're our child and they can give nothing to us. But if somebody's moved beyond that developmentally, we object to being used by them. It's offensive to us. And that doesn't matter whether it is emotionally. You know, nobody likes to be, you know, played upon emotionally by a self-centered person. You know, they're bullying you one second and they're acting all pitiful the next. We don't like that. Um, physically, we rightly, rightly object to unsafe workplaces or, or crazy long hours. Isn't that the case? And, and of course, sexually. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of scenario we always object to be being used. We object because we are persons. We are not objects to be used. We are created in the image of God, and therefore we have dignity. Well, it shouldn't surprise us then that God does not want to be used as well. The final verse, Ecclesiastes verse 7, 5 verse 7, the phrase at the end there is the one I want to focus on here. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. We'll get to that. But this phrase right here, God is the one who you must fear. Now this is the second time that the author has spoken about fear. The first time it was just kind of an observation. The fact that God has set the times and the seasons, that he knows the beginning from the end, and you can't know it, and therefore we should fear God because everything is under his control. Well, today he is actually saying not just, yeah, this is so you could fear God, like this detached observation, but he's actually saying you should fear God, you must fear God. A definition for the fear of God, if you're not familiar with this concept, is on the screen. And even if you are familiar with it, I found this very helpful. The fear of God describes an attitude of holy reverence toward God and a creaturely openness to being instructed by him. Two elements of the fear of God, an attitude of reverence and an openness to his guidance, which is basically worship. We will kind of use those two interchangeably today. To worship is to fear God. To fear God is to worship. Now, as I said, he's turned his gaze. You know, it's almost as if he's looking under the sun at just things that he's observing. And here he is observing people going up to the moder- to their temple of the day. And he says, okay, I'm going to see two different types of worshipers here. He sees that there is a danger of approaching God casually as opposed to approaching him with reverence. So we're going to do this morning, we're going to contrast those two types of worshipers the one that uses God and the ones that worship God. So first of all, the worshiper of God respects the holy. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. We would say, watch your step when you go to the temple. Why? Because it's a holy place, a unique place, a special place. Think about what you're doing and think about who you're having to do with. It's God that you're approaching. It was holy because God was there in a special way. They know, of course, that, you know, they they were not pagans in the sense they thought, like, God is only in this building that I am approaching. 
they knew that, that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool, but the temple was the center of their worship in a very special place. It was holy because that is where the law was read and explained. We have great privilege to have the entire word of God bound up where we can carry it or we can open it up on our devices. However, they did not have that. Maybe the king had a copy, but to hear the law, you had to go to the temple to hear it read. It was holy because of the sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices for us, we, we look at them kind of distastefully. We, we're, we're like, wow, I, I don't like the you know, animals, innocent animals being killed and, and all that blood and stuff. But to the people of Israel, the sacrifices were very precious. And that is because not only was it the way that they could have their sins atoned for or covered so that they could approach God, so they could be right with each other, but it was such a part of their identity. You see, God had said, you will sacrifice to me. So it showed that they were monotheists. There was only one God. It also was something of a reenactment. Uh, their judgment and their salvation. When we fell in, the, uh, in, Ch- in Genesis, the first thing that happened, an animal was killed. And the blood was, was shed, and then they were covered by it. And so the shedding of blood was kind of a reenactment of how they first fell and then how God made way for them to be covered. It was also a picture of their exile and their restoration. If you know what the Passover is, they they had to kill an animal and put its blood over there so the wrath of God would pass over. And so reminded that they were slaves and now they are free. So basically, the sacrifices captured everything that was their hope. Now, you and I, we have no temple, so how should we guard our steps? Because it's true, since the coming of Jesus, worship is no longer centered in a place. Jesus angered his critics when he claimed that his body was the temple. He said, if you kill this body in three days, I'll raise it up. Obviously a reference to his death. Then when he left, he left his followers the Holy Spirit, another comforter, And then later on, it begins talking about us as the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't have a place that is our temple. We don't have to go to the temple to hear the law. It's in our hands, and but much more importantly, it is in our hearts. It has been inscribed there. You can read about this in Romans chapter 8, where it says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Basically how this works, the indwelling Holy Spirit empowers us to become a new people. And so for us, the sacrificial system is not needed because Jesus Christ took it once and for all and paid for sin completely so that we can approach God. And now he is interceding for us. And so we don't have to go and see sacrifices. So the temple is not a place that we can go and kind of prepare ourselves But as followers of Jesus and temples of the Holy Spirit, how do we guard our steps? Well, we need to cultivate an awareness of his presence. Now, this is not totally unlike them. Many of the Psalms were written before the temple was built. David was writing these Psalms, and yet he could say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, his mind was always on the place where God is. And that really is what the temple is, the place where God is. He understood it as heaven, his final abode, and he lived in that reality. 
even if he couldn't go to a building. We can do that as well. You know, kind of the New Testament version of guarding your steps or watching your steps is found in Colossians chapter 1. And it's in the phrase this, walk worthy of our calling. How do we walk worthy? Well, in that passage, it says that it entails increasing in our knowledge of God. So one of the ways that we watch our steps is learn more about God. Second of all, be continually strengthened in his power. We watch our steps by being dependent upon him. And then finally, it says giving thanks. We watch our steps by giving gratitude. So gratitude is very, very close to grace. You cannot have gratitude unless you fully realized what is going on. And so this is a way of watching our steps. Second, there are places in which there is a special manifestation of God's presence. For example, where God's people are gathered. You know, we can certainly prepare our times. When we come for these times of worship, to actually say, I am in the presence of God. I am with people. I'm going to prepare my heart to approach God. That is one way we can do that. Before we have communion, a lot of times we'll have a time of of self-examination where we stop and we think about what this symbol entails. You know, maybe you've even had the experience of praying with other believers. And this is kind of a unique thing. And, and if you've never experienced it, I hope that you will be able to. But I'm talking about where you have two or three people who are entering into the work of praying for one another deeply. You may be doing that on your knees. You may be doing that on your face. But there has been an experience, and maybe this has been your experience, where there's almost like a heavy sense of God's presence And I've noticed in that setting that often people who do not do this very often will weep. And it's it's an amazing thing. And the only way you can explain it is that God's presence is with them in a special way where two or three are. And so we watch our steps by walking worthy of our calling and respecting the gathering of the church. Now the other side of that is thoughtless ritual. He notes this, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, when you hear that word fool, uh, that is a very strong word. And I don't want you to think that this person is, is devious and evil necessarily. I think they are just very, very unaware And so we're looking at worshipers who fear God and then worshipers who are are just kind of oblivious. They don't even know that they are doing evil. So he's going to point out that people who are not guarding their steps do come to the temple, and they too are offering sacrifices, what is called the sacrifice that fools make. Now maybe they were subpar sacrifices, which that is evil in itself, but more likely they're just doing it with no heart of repentance. They don't realize there's no Godward movement in their heart when they do this. They think that the thing itself is all that is required. We may just call this going through the motions. It may just being half there. Maybe willing enough. Maybe, yeah, I don't mind going to church today. But just thoughtless, not thinking. You know, we never should mistake the form. Which, by the way, the forms that we do, there's nothing wrong with them. Reading of scripture, prayers, liturgy, singing, these are all forms. 
However, you should never mistake the form for the thing itself. Singing and all these things, these are pointing to larger realities. However, it is possible to enter into them in a thoughtless way. And that is a danger anytime we approach them. Partaking in the holy without a heart for God. So that's a, uh, that's a person that is using God. What about the worshiper? A worshiper listens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 again. To draw near to listen is better. Now, our teacher is always talking about uh, it's better to do this and better to do that. He says, better than offering a sacrifice of fools is to draw near to listen. You know, we looked at that fear of God definition where it said, there is a creaturely openness to being instructed by him. And so you say, like, I am a creature. You are the creator. I am coming to you. I am listening. This fear prompts us to draw near to listen. And in that phrase, you can almost hear that a priest has read the law, and then the priest is going to open up and explain the law. And there are people who actually hear that, and they start coming and drawing near so they can hear it. Someone called this stance of the heart a humble silence. It's the stance of a creature who is open to be instructed. Hear, O Israel, is what God calls. I want to turn your attention to a psalm, Psalm 46. It'll be on the screen here. So in this psalm, you're going to see the empty ritual that God does not want. And you hear that in the, the first and last phrase. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. And then burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have not required. Now, God did require sacrifices, but he didn't want the empty ones, the ones that were half-hearted, thoughtless. What does he want, though? But you've given me an open ear. You know, instead, God wants an open ear. God delights in those who listen. I love how this, this concept is captured in a lot of our songs. Be still my soul, the Lord is on my side. In other words, calm your soul. Sometimes we sing this song, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the gift of your holy word. That's that prayer. There's an old song, a throwback song, Heart of Worship, right? You remember that one? I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I'm give you more than a song. It's an open ear that is wanted. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, we sing. But don't miss that phrase, you've given me an open ear. I can never forget the time when when a professor uh, told me literally that this is literally ears that you have dug out for me. Eugene Peterson, who's the, the translator of the message, writes about this so memorably. He says, God is speaking and must be listened to, but what good is a speaking God without listening ears? And so God gets a pick and shovel and digs through the cranial granite. So it turns out that the type of listening that can turn into obedience is kind of like a renovation, a divine renovation where God digs out our ears so that we can hear him. And, uh, and it's only through that divine renovation that we can have the transformation that all of us want. There are many ways in which God is speaking. The Bible speaks of how he speaks in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. He speaks through his word. All things pertain to life and godliness. He speaks to us in in his son, the way that Jesus modeled and the way that he died. And as we think and we meditate upon his life, God is speaking to us. 
in the proclamation of the word. You know, at, at Ogletown, we are a people who value the word, and we provide many opportunities to hear the word. Some of them happened at the 945 hour, where there's Sunday Bible studies. Many of you are in book studies right now. Uh, there, there are preaching times. There are times where we sing. And, and we're also our quiet time. These are all wonderful opportunities. And it's so encouraging because I see a genuine hunger here to hear the word. However, we have to never mistake uh, being exposed to these things for listening. You see the difference? Exposure to them is not the same thing as actually listening. You know, how often has it been your experience that you, you buzz through the passage that you intend to read for the day without acknowledging that, that listening is a supernatural event requiring ears that God has dug out? And so we should be praying every time we get a chance to be exposed to God's word, oh God, incline my heart to fear your name. Show me wondrous things out of your law, or even, God, just open up my ears. You know, we're, we're all busy, and many of us are tired. But this humble stance, a listening stance, it is available to every single person, from the busiest of students to the most exhausted of parents. Now, drawing near to listen is better than the alternative, and we find the alternative in verse 2. And uh, this, is, this is rash talk. Be not rash with your mouth, it says in verse 2, if you look at your copy of scriptures, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So this other worshiper, after rushing into God's presence without any self-examination, they, they get there and they can't listen. They're full of, of pious phrases and, and ready to make promises. Or maybe they're just all business. They're a worshiper on a mission. They're going to say, hey, I've done my duty for you, God. Now what are you going to do for me? You know, maybe this person is frustrated with some of the uh, vanities of life that we've encountered. We've talked about how, how life can feel cyclical. We've, we've talked about how... Um, investments can do poorly, or maybe they needed some help with some crops, or maybe they, they needed a new client, or that magistrate is giving me a hard time. And so they say, God, I've got something that I need from you. Well, they come in with much words and hasty hearts, and it reveals a conviction. And here's their conviction. I can impress God by my many words. Maybe by my doing my duty and, and going through the forms, maybe I can bargain with God. Maybe I can impress him. If this is the stance, this is an attempt to use God. Now, Jesus did not like empty phrases either that tried to get God's attention. Matthew 6, 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. You know, it is a, a pagan way of approaching God. And Kohelis' advice is, let your words be few. Now, we're not talking about the number of words. Uh, Jesus spent the entire night talking to his father in prayer and communing with him. So I imagine there were plenty of words and conversations that went on. But the type of pious words that are intended to control God, yeah, let those kind of words be few. 
And the answer for why that is is very simple. Because God's in heaven and you're on earth. In other words, you don't approach him as an equal. You can't control him and you cannot manipulate him with your words and your schemes. Never forget that he's in heaven. He is in a place where his will is always done. He makes decrees. He sets the seasons. And here we are on earth. We are under the sun. We can't see the end from the beginning. We are subject to seasons and injustice and futility. And so, do not forget that difference. You cannot control God. Verse 3 is just a proverb. He's just going to kind of reinforce what he was saying. And the proverb is this. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It means something like this. When you have big dreams and plans then it's going to come with a lot of worry. And, and that's just the way it is, right? So if you've got a big dream, it comes with a ton of worry. And then he follows up and says, and a fool comes with many words. All right, they're a package deal. As surely as a big plan brings big worries, a big fool comes with a lot of words before God. Be careful. Now worship, moving on, fulfills its vows. We see this in verses 4 and 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So don't delay in fulfilling a vow that you made with God. And this is one of the places where Koheleth, the teacher, actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 23, which is the first time he does that. And so now we learn that, oh, here is a man who knows the law of God. Now the reason... For paying your vows is simple enough. God has no pleasure in fools, which is an understatement. He doesn't like it when people play games with him. One who charges in, makes promise, but their heart is far from him. He's going to give another proverb to support. It's better that you should not vow than vow and not pay. So fulfill what you vow. Which kind of led me to the, the question, uh, should, should you be making vows? In other words, should you be making solemn promises to God with an accompanying action that you will fulfill? Well, for to answer that, let's talk briefly about vows. First of all, especially in the Old Testament, people did make vows, especially when they were in trouble. I'll put one of them on the screen. The psalmist says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I'll perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. Oh, okay. So a lot of times we make vows when we are under pressure or we're in trouble. That's what Jonah did. He says that he will pay his vows. I bet he did make a vow. So you see, usually it's under pressure or sometimes it's when they're grateful. There are times in scripture where people made uh, awful vows. The worst vow ever. I mean, period was made by a guy named Jephthah, and that's in Judges chapter 11. You could, you could read it. And so he was a military leader, and he said, God, if you will, you will help me win this battle, whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And he comes back from the battle, and his daughter comes out. Apparently, he kept his word, or maybe he adjusted it so that she just had to remain unmarried for the rest of her life. But, I mean, that was a, a horrible vow. So, should you make vows? Well, hear this. There is no explicit encouragement in the New Testament to make a vow. Jesus clearly moves away from it. 
He was talking to some people who were like making oaths and they were saying, uh, my word was only good if I make an oath with it or a vow. And he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, don't, don't be making oaths and weaseling out of things. The truth is that God never forces anybody to vow anything. But the truth is also there are times where God's people have felt compelled to do so. And so if you were inclined to, I think your motivation would be important. We've already talked about the fact that God will not be controlled and he will not be manipulated. Uh, but perhaps you're saying, like, it's out of gratitude. Or maybe you've got something you're like, I, I am tempted to trust this amount of money and therefore I'm going to let it go as a demonstration of dependence. That would be between you and God, and that could be an act of faith. But in the face of his warnings here, I would be careful and be sure to follow through if you do. And I was also thinking about this. We do make promises to God. You know, sometimes we say before God and these witnesses, till death do us part. We do that before God. Uh, sometimes we have parent-child dedications where we stand up and we reaffirm our member covenant. We say, we promise that we will raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Sometimes we sing it. There's an old hymn that says, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. And, and people sing that. That's almost like making a vow. It also occurred to me that Jesus said in Luke 9:62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So he was talking to a would-be disciple who was judging whether or not he was going to follow Jesus with his life. And really, saying that I'm going to follow Jesus is something of a vow. You are putting your hand to a plow and there's no turning back. And so, yeah, sometimes we do make solemn promises. But someone who uses God waffles on their vows. We find this in verse 6. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So apparently, the people rushed into the temple and said, hey, I promise you, God, I will do this. They registered their vow with the temple, and then when they didn't pay it, they sent them a messenger and said, uh, hey, about that vow, and, uh, and yeah, and so here's what they, they were doing. The law actually makes provision for unintentional sins. There's a pretty fascinating passage in Leviticus chapter 5 that says this, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt... If he realizes his guilt and confesses his sin, he shall bring to the Lord a sacrifice and compensation. Well, what I get from that is that somebody makes a promise in good faith that they were going to fulfill, and then something hidden comes out of the blue and makes it so they're unable to fulfill it. And, uh, and there's a provision made here for the fact that you could bring a sacrifice and, and be free of that. I think what's happening here to these people who are rushing in and making rash oaths is, is very different. They were claiming that passage as a loophole. In other words, they're, they're Teflon. So maybe it went this way. Maybe they said, okay, God, if you'll do this for me, and then whatever they were hoping happens, and they're like, okay, I guess I didn't need to do that. Or maybe it didn't happen, and they're like, wow, that was a bad investment. I'm not going to pay it. Well, 
the, the, the writer here says, why should God be angry and destroy the work of your hands? So the irony is, a person who is, is using vows in that way, playing with God in that way, uh, they're trying to keep their stuff. But, but he says, God's arm is not short. He will not be despised. And all the enigmas that we've talked about are at his disposal. And he may destroy the works of your hands. You made these promises because you thought God would prosper you. And so he will withdraw that prosperity. With many, he goes on and says another Proverbs, with many dreams come vanities and a multitude of words. You know, this is kind of the first time that the teacher says that vanity is, uh, comes from foolishness. Before he was just kind of observing, like, this is vanity, that's vanity, this is the way that life is. But here he says that vanity comes from your foolishness, your daydreaming, the things that you say, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and blah, blah, blah. And he says that brings vanity. He concludes that God's the one you must fear. So let's conclude with that. Let's revisit that definition. I'm just going to kind of wrap things up here for us. The fear of God describes an attitude of holy reverence. Okay, so it's an attitude toward God and a creaturely openness to being instructed by him. He identifies that big dreams apart from God and many words are vanity. And vanity means that something is broken. Something is askew. Something is unsolvable. And so here's the question, just in summary, how do we get aligned again? Okay, if he says, like, you've got these, these problems with vanity and some of them come from your foolishness, your words and your, and your dreams, uh, how do you get aligned with this? So here's what I'd like us to take away. All right, two summary thoughts. Number one, take God seriously as God. Beware thoughtless rituals. Anytime that you or I hope that we get some sort of achievement merit for what we do for God, that our heart's not in, even our time with God, even our time before him with communion, or perhaps even worship for just emotion's sake, These are all ways that we can get pulled into thoughtless ritual. Take him seriously. You know, I may need a reminder that that it's not my many words or my promises or how often I approach God or what I say that catches his attention. It's not my many words. It's a broken and contrite spirit that he loves. You know, we're never impressed when somebody tries to play with our words and box us in. God, God is not impressed with that either. So don't come with him with many words. Then finally, I I don't think there are probably many of us who are regularly making vows, you know, and breaking them and and claiming obscure texts of scripture to do it. But, you know, maybe you you are tempted to look back. Maybe following Jesus has gotten really hard, you know, and you're thinking, this isn't what I expected. And now you're, you're tempted to try another life path. Well, just here today, Take God seriously. He is saying that is a sure path to futility. So take God seriously as God. And second, engage with him personally. Respect the holy. Think about your life lived before God. A life that watches its step is a life that that walks worthy. And so we are supposed to constantly learn about God. We're supposed to constantly collapse on him for dependence. We're supposed to consciously give thanks to him. That is how we respect the holy and watch our step.
listen to him. Before we're going to be exposed to his word, pray that simple prayer. Just say, Lord, open my ears. Help me hear you. Lord, here are my worries and cares. I give them to you. These are ways that we open ourselves up to listen to him. And then be silent enough to allow his voice to be heard. Boy, and that is a, a, um, that is a task for us, isn't it? We're so busy. Our phones are going off all the time. We can't even concentrate. But we've got to learn to listen and to quiet ourselves before God. And as we're doing it, use simple words. You know, we can talk to him with simple words. We don't need to resort to, to foolishness of phrases and many words to get his attention. We have his attention. I love Romans twenty-eight twenty-six. that says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. You know, it's not the, the beauty and the structure of our prayers. It, it is our heart. And sometimes, you know, before you, you come to God and the prayer, that, the only thing that you can offer to him is, is God, help. In Jesus' name, amen. Or we say, oh God, thank you. Or we say, oh Father, please help this sister. I don't know how to help at this time. Or help my brother, he's in pain. I don't even know how to pray. Like those types of prayers the Holy Spirit takes and he fills them in. So use simple words, heartfelt words. Then finally, don't look back on your vow to following him. Press forward in his footsteps. Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. He actually says that you're taking a yoke upon you. You are going to follow in his footsteps and it will be work, but you will serve some master And it will feel like dying, because it is. But that is the path to home. It will lead us to a meaningful life. Two types of worshipers, which one am I going to be? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of this ancient writer that looks at life and doesn't blink. Or thank you for his observation of, of the types of worshipers. Father, we thank you for uh, the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us clean, the fact that we don't have to vow and to work our way where he did all the work for us. So, Father, I pray that we would come to him, come to you with, with dependence and gratitude and love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.